Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Good evening, everybody. And it is evening in the States, but it's lunchtime in Australia. And I am very happy to have with me Oliver Villar, who is the author of this book, Cocaine, Death Squads, and the War on Terror, U.S. Imperialism and Class Struggle in Colombia. And I'm no stranger to this material, but this was a really eye-opening book. So I think it's an important book for, for the recovery community. Um, before we start, maybe just a little bit about you, Oliver, uh, where you teach and how you became interested in this topic. Um, I'm currently uh, at Charleston University uh, in Bathurst, uh, New South Wales in Australia. So that's just outside of, of, of the big city of Sydney. Um, and uh, uh, I, I got into this project, this very long project, um, when I started my uh, undergraduate thesis back in the early noughties. So uh, the, the big question there was, was the war on drugs? What, what was the war on drugs? Um, what, what, who does it benefit? Um, what's the history behind it? And uh, yeah, I, I was fascinated uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because growing up in the working class suburbs in uh, uh, western suburbs of Sydney, uh, drugs uh, uh, has, have always been around. Um, so I was no stranger seeing uh, friends who were uh, drug addicts uh, or, you know, were part of that uh, sort of criminal underclass, so to, will, uh, so, so to speak. So, um, you know, it was a, a bit of a story of the proletarian class struggle in many ways. Plus, being Latin American, I thought um, the American popular culture um, uh, was interesting as well, given that um, uh, it was a Latin American problem, nothing more. So as a, as, as a young intellectual, uh, you know, um, just not really being satisfied with, with the kind of dominant narrative and things led me to eventually study these questions. And then from there on, I did a PhD that looked into this far more deeply, I tried to provide a, um, uh, a history and also a political economy analysis of the drug trade as a whole. So from there, I think um, uh, it led me to um, uh, some, some success uh, uh, in, pu in publishing um, a lot of my material. And then eventually um, a, a real, a real um, a prestigious uh, outlet called Monthly Review who were, who were, who were very interested. And that's the, the, the product of, of that book you have in your hand. Uh, well, one of the things that really grabbed me at first was when you briefly talked about uh, the history of cocoa in Latin America after it became a cash crop. And I had no idea that there were uh, in the 18th century, I think it was, starting then, 
actual plantations, cocoa plantations. And so it's been part of the sort of colonial uh, economy, infrastructure, whatever, from the very beginning. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think um, uh, uh, what, I felt, what, what I found very um, uh, fascinating and an eye-opener to me um, was just how, um, how old um, much of this uh, drug narco-politics actually is, and it dates back to uh, early European colonialism, um, uh, particularly from the Spanish and what they were doing in, in South America. And as, 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 and as you, as you uh, suggest, um, there was a cocoa economy that existed um, in the Andes region, and cocoa was a way to um, uh, substitute um, natives um, from actually paying them feed them cocoa to actually work. Um, and, that, and, and the Spanish made, made, made quite, a, quite a, a significant profit out of the, uh, the kind of slave labor in the early colonial period. And of course, from there, it, my own intellectual curiosity led to looking at the history of other great empires, colonialism and also, and also modern contemporary imperialism and their history. And I found that the British were also involved um, with, of course, the British colonial opium, opium trade, um, mm -hmm. pushing opium on the Chinese mm -hmm. um, to basically break their back and open their markets to Western imperialism. And also, I think what I found also far more interesting in the more contemporary context, how the United States and US policy under the banner of the war on drugs was basically doing the same thing. So this ongoing ongoing failure led me to think that maybe it's a success story from a very different angle. Yeah. Um, and what's the, what's the commonality here? Profits, social control, repression, um, and a, a real class dynamic when it comes to those who are benefiting and those who are suffering. And this is, has an old ancient, ancient history going back to, as you say, the, the Spanish and now into in the, in the, you know, underdeveloped parts of the world and lower socioeconomic um, sectors of modern society in your country, in mine, uh, and now across the world with this globalization of yeah. Western um, imposed economic and political affairs. So uh, coming up into a more modern period, another thing that you do is you use a lot of terms that I'd never heard before. Uh, one which was really academics tend to do that unfortunately <laughs> i try to resist i try to resist that i try to be simple and plain as uh, as i possibly can i mean the original document was like this thick i oh, really? brought it down for that purpose so that all of us can read and i'm and i and probably it worked with you that you were able to get through it well no i was i was fascinated and the, one of the first terms you used that i'd never seen before was the crystal triangle yeah and that is uh, Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia? That's correct. That's correct. And you, it's the Crystal Triangle because it is where both a lot of cocoa is grown, but also the paste, the raw material for the cocaine, right? Yeah, that's right. And when, when did that start picking up? The 50s or? Well, the history behind um, what I call the Crystal Triangle was also fascinating. Um, I, I, I discovered that throughout different periods of history, 
coca production, uh, that coca being the, the raw material for processed cocaine, uh, was, was, was still pretty much limited um, in, in parts of the Andes, uh, uh, particularly in uh, Bolivia um, and parts of Peru. Colombia had a, a, has a more modern contemporary story, which would be, I think, uh, come to it as a surprise to many. Cocaine as a, as, as a, as a trade um, started to flourish in the 19, late 70s and 1980s under, of course, the cartels, all the popular culture. Will, 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 you know, there's a, there's a um, Netflix series called Narcos. There's that American-type Hollywood perspective, but it was there. They, they, they are right on one thing, at least, is that that's the period in which cocaine actually became a factor in, in, in Colombia. But historically, it was Bolivia and, and Peru, so that mm. was interesting. Um, the cartels, what, what what they would do is, of course, um, uh, have arrangements with uh, um, coca, uh, coca producers in Bolivia. I, I document that in my book. And then the cartels would actually just, uh, process it and distribute it uh, to American markets and across the world. So for Colombia, it was still a relatively new thing, but it was the cartels that capitalized, yeah. became, became the new monopolist, if you will, um, in producing all of that. So I called that region um, of coca, coca, coca and cocaine production, the Crystal Triangle. And from the 80s, Colombia becomes that epicenter of the crystal triangle. And what inspired me to, to give it a nice little academic concept there um, was, was, of course, the golden triangle and the golden crescent. Yeah. And again, similar histories of colonial and imperial collusion with elites, uh, organized crime, um, and of course, uh, real class dynamics again of profit, social control. Um, and and repression and so forth. Um, and the Cold War is one of the periods in which uh, the United States and, of course, its COVID agencies um, actually embark upon a lot of these alliances to, of course, fight their wars in, in Indochina, uh, uh, try to beat back uh, the Chinese uh, in the 40s before uh, the Chinese Revolution, and, our, and then Central America, um, there's an episode in, in, in American political uh, history called the Iran-Contra scandal. What that, well, the real story is that, of course, the United States was using drug money to fund the, uh, the Contra war uh, in Nicaragua against the Sandinista government. So there's different episodes and chapters where I trace, follow yeah. these, uh, of course, these operations and this collusion between empires and uh, of course the drug trade and if there's a common theme yeah everyone's making money from it the same people are getting poor the same people are getting sick and it's it's great business it's it's, it's good business for for of course um a, a now a global economy yeah. that is so precarious um um and it's a sure thing so that that, that one of the these are some of the big dynamics and questions that that uh, I, I tried to cover in detail in the book. Well, you really succeeded. Um, so then, the next thing that you know kind of blew me away was when you started talking about sort of the different, um, for lack of a better term, uh, cultural social dynamics of 
the um, the Cali cartel versus Escobar. And that was very eye-opening, and that goes very counter to the narrative that we get in the media in the States. So would you like to just comment on the differences between those two groups? Well, by the 1980s, um, I, I, I discovered, just by looking at just, um, you know, financial reports, um, banking uh, reports, uh, economic literature, um, looking at the numbers, looking at the money kind of literature. And I just, I discovered that what, what we're looking at here is, is essentially, and it's the same as it's true to in many respects uh, in the golden triangle, golden present, uh, anarcho economy and just how um, pervasive uh, uh, cocaine money, drug money was in the Colombian economy. And of course, I had to look at, of course, who were benefiting. And I discovered again, uh, another nice academic term, narco bourgeoisie, who were the narco bourgeoisie? It was the landowners, principally yeah. landowners, those with the land, uh, who had a history of, of course, repression against peasants, going dating back to the, the, the Spanish era. Um, and also paramilitary groups, the military, um, and very reactionary ultra right wing kind of groups that were defending their, of course, their land from uh, peasant communities. And one, one force that arose from much of the 20th century from, from, from these class conflicts was the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who grew out of that, that of course, warfare. I mean, it was warfare. Uh, President uh, Kennedy sent a, a battalion of, uh, of, of, of his uh, special forces that had fought in Korea to Colombia to stop some of these peasant uprisings. So this is the narco bourgeoisie has a history of, mm -hmm. of course, repression. They had the best land. They were the ones, of course, making the money. They were the ones in the drug business. Escobar, uh, Carlos Castaño, the Cali Cartel, all these people had either links with these people or had a history with families that were embedded with, with much of this um, history. Now, I think what I, what I thought was um, um, ironic here is that while Escobar was the main focus of, of uh, American efforts, uh, at least in, in, the, in the 90s, when, when the, it was the kind of the, the peak end of the Medellin cartel, um, they were grooming the Cali cartel uh, for, for them to take over. Why, of course, the question was, um, Escobar was too violent. Um, in the end, he was. They were they were going after him for uh, because he illegally um, imported a rhinoceros uh, and animals into into Colombia. It wasn't for for anything else. So you could see the kind of nonsense from you know the the elite, the bourgeoisie, and the kind of yeah. politics they're in. They were really grooming it, and the way they did it was to use a a special um, uh, unit called MAS, uh, which were uh, death to kidnappers of, against Escobar. Carlos Castaño is born out of these, these efforts, along coinciding with the DEA and the CIA. Right. They built this network, and then eventually he builds the United Self-Defense um, uh, uh, group in in, in Colombia, which became the umbrella paramilitary network from the 1990s. They get rid of uh, Escobar. 
Um, there's a big celebration. It's all in the popular culture, in document documentaries, uh, TV series, popular culture novels, etc. But the Kalikato takes over and actually brings it, give, gives it some level of res respectability. So the narco economy moves on from being uh, a very gritty, uh, violent industry to something where uh, uh, the, there are new modes of, 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 of distribution, production, business, which is uh, money laundering, uh, corporations, um, uh, investments, and using a lot of that money into infrastructure, infrastructure projects. And that's the problem where that the FARC represented was that they were that they 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 were an obstacle to a lot of the um, uh, operations that were trying to clear the land from the 1990s and early noughties for the kind of uh, mineral ex exploration and exploitation that we see today. Alvaro Rivelebes, the the president of Colombia, uh, throughout that time from the early noughties way up until uh, 2010, um, uh, is the one who's in charge of uh, unleashing hell on, on these peasant communities. Um, and so pretty much that's the backdrop, sort of the background of the story. It's a history of, of course, trying to clear the land uh, from landless peasants um, and destroy any possibility of using coca for their subsistence. And again, so, in the context in the context of neoliberal policies, they're forced to do that because, of course, trade agreements don't allow them to to do anything else. Uh, they yeah. sell bananas, whatever. There's no cash in it for them. So, just for our audiences, for clarity's sake, yeah, it's safe to say that um, Escobar was more a man of the streets. Yeah. And he, he, he bought a lot of the affection of some of yeah. the urban poor. The Kali cartel will ally itself more with the elites. And then after they take out Escobar, there's a, um, is it safe to say this, that the narco bourgeoisie will start expanding at that time to include people that are in the, um, chemical business, transport business, security business, uh, infrastructure development. And finally, just identify for the audience who FARC really, who, who they are. Yeah. I mean, we, they're, they're resistance fighters, but who are they? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the question about um, uh, how the drug trade and the narco economy changed uh, is, is, is precisely how you put it. It, it. it became institutionalized. And that's what I call the, another nice academic concept, the narco state, mm. where of course, you, you started to see, of course, um, the uh, illegal economy now co coinciding with the legal legal economy, you know that's a very another fancy term that you see in economics textbooks and, and literature. You saw one or well, both one and one and the same, and from there it drew once upon a time um, an 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 illegal economy of workers now becoming finding jobs in the legal economy in areas like transportation. Um, uh, chemicals, uh, security, finance, 
And a lot of the, of course, uh, elites and their children, of course, didn't have to do the, the, the dirty work anymore. They found real jobs, legitimate work and that kind of thing. So you, you're, you're essentially looking at an institutionalization of the drug trade in Colombia. Um, and then, you, of course, you have a new generation of, um, of, of workers and employees that are, are basically have free reign to continue to do that. Of course, they have little connection to do with the, the actual um, uh, production of cocaine. That's the work of, of, of the paramilitary groups and the landowners, et cetera, who are well represented in Colombian politics, by the way. Mm. Same is true in the Golden Triangle. Same is true in, 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 in some episodes of the Mexican politics as we speak. But you see this change of um, uh, economic um, uh, policy and a new workforce being created. So that's that narco state, narco economy aspect of the narco bourgeoisie who now come uh, and enter the 21st century, so to speak. And that I think is uh, a key point there. The other question was about- um, Is the identity of the FARC guerrillas. The FARC. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the, the, FARC, the FARC grew uh, from the, again, the, the efforts of uh, the Kennedy administration to try to wipe out what were uh, known as peasant republics. Um, the, what was happening in Colombia was considered a far greater threat for, for a while than the, than the Indochina threat, mm. the rise of, of course, spread of communism, et cetera. Now, from a very narrow Cold War perspective, it was just, you know, about, you know, the boogeyman in Russia and, of course, the United States saving the world. But, of course, when you look at the history, there's very indigenous re reasons and, and, and movements happening even in Indochina, the struggle against French colonialism, you know, independence, that kind of thing. Colombia, it was pretty much a story of peasants trying to find their own way to survive in a country that didn't want them. If you go back to the La Violencia, it's a period of Colombian history where from 1948 to 58, where the elite have a disagreement over land reform. Um, there's a, a key figure in, 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 in the Liberal Party uh, side of, of Colombian politics called Jorge Eliseo Gaitan, who's assassinated, because he's starting to talk about land reform. He's assassinated and every, the, the, the Liberal end of Colombian politics blames the Conservatives. There's a civil war. Um, hundreds of thousands of Colombians are killed. Now, of course, the, the more reactionary um, elements of, of the ruling class start going after the peasants because the peasants start finding, finding uh, more independent ways to, to, to survive. They no longer believe that the establishment can help them, and they, of course, start creating these independent communities. Kennedy, Kennedy sent these battalions out to destroy them. Out of that, that uh, warfare, Many radicalized liberals now learn about, um, of course, the limitations of liberalism. They learn about, of course, Marxism. Some have a better education than, than, than peasants and so forth, but they're radicalized. They come from different stripes. And Manuel Marulanda, uh, a former liberal, um, a veteran of La Violencia and the Civil War, forms some um, self-defense groups there to defend these peasant communities. And then from there, you have this nucleus because that becomes the FARC, and in 1964 is officially recognised in the socialist bloc. And that becomes the armed force that defends the peasant communities 
um, against what, what, what is state terrorism, which continues um, way up until the present time. You, you're looking at more numbers being killed in that, in that un, undeclared civil war um, after La Violencia than during, the, than during La Violencia. What, what years were La Valencia? 1948 to 1958. And the, the demographic of the FARC, it's mestizo, pe uh, indigenous, some African, and, and then some intellectuals? Predominantly peasants, predominantly peasants, which I think will makes the FARC very unique if you compare it to, say, the... Um, the uh, liberation organizations of the 80s, for example, in Central America, which were drawn from uh, classrooms or, or the church. The FARC came from the actual peasant class, the poorest of the poorest. And um, of course, its main leader, um, the face of the FARC uh, uh, in 1964, Manuel Marulanda, were one of those peasants. So that's what made it a very dangerous um, um, ideological and political force uh, up until this very day because um, it was hard to bribe them. It was hard to um, get them into back into um, uh, electoral politics, which they tried, by the way. In the 80s, they uh, put together La Unión Patriotica, the Patriotic Union, which was, a, a, a if you will, kind of a, a coalition of left-wing forces that were trying to put pressure on the government to accept some of these peasant demands, which included unions and, and so forth, that whole movement was disseminated um, up to 5,000 activists, leaders, um, uh, rank and file members were, were, were killed. So, of course, the lesson was, let's not try that again. So, in a way, you've got two Colombias, one where you have the insurgents, the FARC, and also the ELN, which are drawn more from that middle class, classroom, church background, also working to try to transform Colombian society. But you've got two Colombians basically separated from a, a very uh, effective counterinsurgency campaign funded yeah. by Washington since Kennedy um, up, up until the present day, which of course creates this, this, this separation between um, uh, the official Colombia, as Gaetan put it, who the, the politician that was a liberal politician that was assassinated in 1948, and the real Colombia, the masses. So there's a real, of course, separation between the masses of people who are impoverished, landless, and of course the tourist sites that, of course, Westerners uh, see um, and enjoy. And in the States, we got a narrative when uh, Bush and Clinton inaugurated Plan Columbia, yes. we got a narrative that the FARC were funding their yeah. efforts through the sale of cocaine and that they were actually the drug dealers that needed to be targeted. And yet in reality, very little of their revenue actually came from cocaine. Or, or cocoa, I should say. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. In the from the from the eighties onwards, if, you go, if I could go further a little bit back under the Reagan Bush administration, they started using the term narco terrorism. First to attack Escobar, 
um, and also to attack the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And mm. the basic narco-terrorist sort of assumption there, the, the, the theory was um, that there was a link between Escobar, left-wing groups, the Sandinistas and the Soviet Union. So, of course, that was um, outrageous. Um, yeah, I mean, right. it's, that goes beyond conspiracy theories. But it, but it worked in, in, the, in, in the circles of power in, in Washington to, of course, fund what, what became Plan Colombia, which was a multi-billion dollar uh, counterinsurgency effort to destroy the FARC. But, of course, in the background, what we have to ask what was Plan Colombia for? If we think of the period in which um, Uribe came came into power, what did he do? Um, there was um, capital intensive infrastructure um, uh, uh, invested into, into Colombia. But what the obstacle of that, of course, was the insurgent groups. So Plan Colombia was a way to fund the war against the, 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 the FARC, but also clear the land for this capital intensive infrastructure projects. So we're looking at minerals, we're looking at oil. Colombia is very rich in, in oil. We hear about Venezuela, but Colombia is very rich in oil as well. But as I look in the book, cocaine is also uh, a commodity. They were, of course, enriching themselves using that land as well to expand the coca production areas in, 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 in Colombia to the point that now it's regionalised in other parts of South America. Um, and if we see it from a global perspective, now the, tra the, the trade routes and distribution networks have gone beyond uh, the United States, um, but now globally. And the Mexicans have played a key role in the distribution aspect of that. Uribe's, Uribe's biography is fascinating. His more information comes out because he's faced a lot of, of course, um, uh, 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 legal um, uh, challenges to, to his past uh, war crimes, uh, uh, human rights abuses and so forth. More information is coming out, just how connected um, the Colombians have been with the Mexican families. And that's unraveling and it's coming out. So I think if we think of this in the backdrop, we're seeing a narco-bourgeoisie that's, that's helping to um, push for these uh, infrastructure projects in Colombia. And it's American money that's allowing it uh, to do it. And yet, as you point out really beautifully towards the latter part of the book, most of the money that is made through the production and sale of cocaine in Colombia really winds up on Wall Street. The narco bourgeoisie are probably very wealthy, but they're really just minions for the real money at Wall Street. Yeah, precisely, precisely. If, if you think of it, if we go back to theory, if you think of a business elite, a comprador class, that's essentially what the narco bourgeoisie are. Um, they're, of course, uh, executing uh, the wishes of, of Washington, pretty much like what we've seen in, uh, in Afghanistan with the, the, uh, the, uh, the reintroduction and flourishing of, of, of poppies um, after the US intervention yeah. there. You have the same networks and groups making money. But the money, of course, is ending up where it's in the United States. In the, it's in the financial sector. And now there's a whole amount of literature. I mean, if you look at the final end of the numbers game, there's, there's, there's a 
massive amount of evidence to suggest that no one asks any questions. If we look at the banks, the financial uh, sector mm -hmm. and so forth, right. um, and it's big, what they call money laundering is huge. But where is that, where is that money laundry uh, drawn from? It's the drug trade. So it's at the, at the demand side, which is, of course, stimulating the drug war and offering the incentive for the military industrial complex and the war on drugs, and then the war on terror for this madness to continue. So my, my conclusion, um, and it's an empirical one, is that it's been by design, not by failure, that this continues to hurt people, but yet um, uh, make, make people very wealthy um, for those who want to collaborate in, in, in these operations. And it's New York, um, it's the financial sector, and it's the, 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 the corporations that, of course, are the biggest corporations that are always get caught, but nothing ever happens. You're looking yeah. at small fines, you're looking at nothing. And the private military contractors as well that have a direct stake in providing security and counterinsurgency in, in places, in drug-producing zones like Colombia and other and elsewhere. Is it safe to say that the money laundering is dominated by the United States and the UK of the drug trade internationally? Um, I think I think they're, they're the key drivers um, of of the of the money laundering um, system. Um, but I think since the since the nineties, we've seen a um, a globalization, if you will, of of money laundering efforts in Western Europe as well. And now, since the fall of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe as well, and even and even today in modern China, where capitalism, of course, has taken hold, and everyone's in on it. But but again, it's a pro-Western, pro-US policy. And this is where, when we look at the history of uh, the, the COVID uh, operations and agencies, they're the ones directing the policy. And the, 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 the biggest sin that Medellin, uh, the Median cartel under Escobar committed was he, he didn't want to um, answer, uh, answer to anybody. He was from the street. Um, and, of course, um, he wanted to give back a little bit um, to, to his people, and that's why he was known as a, as a Robin Hood. Yeah. So from time to time, you get these Robin Hood characters coming in and out. And, of course, that gives a sense of, of, of desperation um, uh, to, to, to the people who need the help the most. And for the United States, they become an enemy uh, as well. Um, one of the things that you mentioned there briefly that I thought was fascinating was how Escobar's men actually took out a lot of prominent uh, drug dealers in Florida that were actually old Cuban nationals. And he, he got the enduring enmity of the, the, our State Department because those folks were effectively CIA assets. That was... Yeah. <laughs> that, that seemed very brazen to me as an American, you know, that he's just going to come up here and take out those guys. Yeah, look, in the 80s, particularly in areas like uh, Miami, Florida, um, yeah. there was a, there's a whole um, uh, kind of uh, 
legendary, notorious imagery that's involved. You know, you had TV shows like Miami Vice that became popular, uh, Scarface. Uh, yeah. You know, the 80s was this time of mystery that cocaine was flourishing everywhere in, in places like Miami. People were getting rich. No one knew where it was coming from. But when it comes to Miami, Florida, who were, who were the rivals to the Colombian cartels? It was the Miami Cubans who, were, who had fled Cuba after the revolution and, of course, uh, were still involved in criminal uh, organisations who wanted their share of that cocaine distribution networks. Escobar wouldn't have it. I mean, this guy was notorious. He cleaned them out. And, and, and from that... That was one of the reasons how one of the reasons why the, the Escobar increasingly became an opponent rather than an, an asset, as as in earlier stages of the United States. He had, um, he had a lifelong enmity to the United States, didn't he? Well, well at the beginning, the the the, the, the origins and the uh, the organization of the, the drug networking. Um, was was all, all coordinated by by the by the intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. We go back even to 1980, the the, the infamous cocaine coup in Bolivia mm-hmm. that put in the arguably one of the first narco states in South America. Uh, in in Bolivia, we had military generals and also drug traffickers running the government. Escobar comes after that, so there's a whole history where of collaboration with intelligence networks. Peter Dale Scott has written extensively on this. Um, uh, there's, there's literature there, but no one puts it together. What I had to do, of course, is make some sense of it and give it some political and economic explanation. Yeah. And get, going back to the Cubans, the, the Cubans had played a key role in trying to um, overthrow Castro. Yeah. So they, be, they became uh, natural allies of the CIA to fight Escobar. So as time goes on, Escobar is making all these enemies because um, he sees himself, he sees himself as the center, uh, the king of cocaine. Um, so that's in many ways his downfall. He doesn't play the game like what you see from here on, uh, where names are actually collaborating uh, or actually uh, uh, limiting their, their their power over over the drug trade. And so then, as your narrative goes on and there's no more Escobar and eventually there's no more Cali cartel and the whole narco state becomes much more streamlined and institutionalized. And, um, and you can even see the effects of privatization within the drug trade. One of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really striking is you said that um, as CIA personnel got replaced by military contractors that gave another layer of um, uh, secrecy because they're protected by corporate privacy. And so it makes it seem like that it just gets more uh, sophisticated and more- uh, Institutionalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have a lot of American military personnel who do their time and then they see big money working for these private security and they're coming out of these war theaters in Iraq and Afghanistan and 
many of them probably know the game already, I would imagine. Yeah, one thing I noticed in the literature um, was uh, particularly in the areas of uh, just just, uh, cor- just corporate um, press releases, uh, their newsletters, um, their websites, this whole trail of biographies and careers of a revolving door between the corporate world and intelligence, all involved in the same kind of uh, operations. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's, there's a number of um, private military uh, companies that I, that I look at, and it, it's, it's the same people over and over again who, um, who aren't prosecuting, uh, of course, uh, um, uh, the, the, the right people, um, or pushing or lobbying for very um, uh, lax um, policies towards money laundering. And there's a real lobby. Um, there's probably another nice little academic concept I should have threw in there. <laughs> there's a real narco lobby in, yeah. in, in the United States. And again, there's, it, it's a whole history that goes back to the Cold War, to the present period where this continues. And it's really now the institutionalization of, of the drug trade is now within the finance sector and the corporate sector. Um, and if you just follow recent American politics, it's, it's, you know, it's always Wall Street. The road oh. to, to Washington um, is through Wall Street. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's to the point now in my work where I routinely tell, in fact, it's one of the first things I tell my clients, is they're worth more sick than well. Yeah, you know whether that's, that's prison yes. treatment, yeah. pharma, that they're they are actually as much a commodity as the cocaine and heroin itself. Precisely, yeah. that's my political economy analysis right there. That's the guts of it. If you want to, we can apply this to COVID. We can apply that apply that to cigarettes, drugs. Um, it's 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 a central feature of capitalism, and that and that it's it's profitable for people to be sick. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, you know, I've done quite a bit of research on, you know, I'm acquainted. I interviewed Doug Valentine one time. And so yeah, I became yeah, he's a, he's good. a wonderful guy. Um, it's really interesting how the drug trade is almost always alive, 99% of the time, to elements on the right. So organized crime is always in bed with right-wing governments, right-wing forces, and how so much of the drug trade from World War II to the fall of the Iron Curtain was hiding behind the cloak of anti-communism. You know, the World Anti-Communist League and Fidel Castro is gonna spread it everywhere through South America. And now that's gone. And so we don't have that that cover. Um, Do you feel that anything is replaced the left is the cover. Well, well, if 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 you think of the reason why they had uh, essentially fascist organisations that were overtly fascist is because there was resistance. Now, I think one of the tragedies, great tragedies, since the end of the Cold War, is that there's little need uh, for uh, over openly self-described fascist groups. Now you've got, of course, mm-hmm. neoliberal policies mm-hmm. as the centre of, of politics and throughout much of the Western world, throughout all the world, if not. Um, so 
that's one of the reasons why I think you you saw the, the these very extraordinary kind of uh, alliances between outright extreme right wing groups in the Cold War with Western policymakers. You know, I, I talk about the the role of Argentina. Mm-hmm. as one, one, one central headquarter in many of the operations before Americans take over after the Falklands War. Um, there's a whole history of that. But now we see, of course, um, uh, 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 a, a very open field where global, global imperialism can now pretty much do whatever it likes. And that's one of the explanations why I think the drug trade is so, uh, so rampant um, than ever before, and so easily accessible when we think of um, drug accessibility and availability. Um, it's because of there's that lack of, of resistance in, in, in a global level. Of course, um, of course, I can't generalise here. There's amazing things happening on local levels. Yeah. But we don't have that systematic global organisation anymore um, that is resisting that. Russia and China now, of course, are now part of the global system of capitalist rivalry and imperialism, as I would call it. So I think that's one of the reasons why um, Washington's struggling to find a replacement for the old boogeyman, whether terrorism was one, but now it's increasingly China or Putin and so forth. So how do we draw that link from an imperial perspective? If you're a policymaker, how do you how do you relive this narco-terrorist idea? Well, so long as the FARC exists, you can still talk about it. But at a global level, it's becoming increasingly difficult for US intervention in parts like Afghanistan where they've lost the war, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a good example in response to your question. Mm-hmm. Well, what so forgive me for not knowing my South American history. I'm I'm a good American in that respect. So a few years ago, there was the ceasefire between the FARC and the Colombian government, right? What was that? Yeah, like? that's correct. In 2016. Yeah, and, yeah. And what's what's happened? Well, I think as as expected, and um, I, I was hoping to be wrong. Um, uh, between. Uh, at the time where uh, Juan Manuel Santos, who took over from Alvaro Vélez in 2010, there was a, a big push to try to um, find some a peace agreement between the FARC and the Colombian government. Much of that work actually was, wasn't coming from um, uh, the Colombian government, but in fact, in fact, from Cuba and Venezuela and the Pink Tide trying to force the FARC to uh, do what they were trying to do in, in, in Venezuela and other parts of South America. Now, of course, the problem with that is that in, in Colombia, there has, there's a long history of state terrorism. As, as we know, it's very difficult to um, build democratic institutions there. Mm-hmm. So that naturally, as expected, failed. What we saw after the peace um, agreement was signed in 2016, an explosion of the cocaine trade and also um, uh, ongoing killings against social leaders, social movement um, leaders, peasant groups, trade union groups, and members of the FARC who who disarmed. So that in many ways actually backfired and actually strengthened the uh, the, the arm of of the narco bourgeoisie. And Uribe was all behind that. 
the new guy, President Duque, um, basically from the very start said, you know, we're not, I'm not going to honor any of these, any of these peace agreements. So in a way, it was a huge mistake. Now, of course, not all FARC um, uh, uh, groups have uh, had disarmed. Uh, and now, so we we're seeing a new stage of Colombian history where we're seeing a new, a new transform transforming aspect of, of, of the struggle. And Trump had a lot to do with that. He basically emboldened the hard right um, who were back, back, back in, at least in the Clinton and Obama years, had to deal with, of course, the politics of, of human rights and so forth. Trump basically let them loose. So that emboldened the whole thing. And that's actually, in a, in a way, radicalised some of the demobilised uh, FARC groups to rearm. And so this is the latest stage of the class, of the class conflict in Colombia, is that what's old is new again. And is there presently violence? Sorry? Is there violence now? Between yes, the yeah. yeah. There's a continuing uh, um, operation of, of assassinating left-wing leaders and social members and demobilized FARC uh, guerrillas. And so are, what's the answer there? Many of them find, well, if the peace agreement has failed and it is what it is, um, we have to keep fighting. Do the FARC or the remnants of the FARC enjoy the support of any other uh, communities outside of Colombia? With, with, I, think, I think that's an interesting question because the narrative in the West um, is, of course, uh, in the English-speaking world uh, and the European community is that the FARC is an isolated group. But if we actually look at the actual um, uh, history and power and influence of the, of the FARC, it's, it's like the ELN. It's at the centre of a lot of the social movements um, and policies that, have, that ha are directly related to the FARC's demands. Like, for example, um, seeking an alternative to coca plantation, something that no Colombian government would ever agree to. Land reform, which started La Violencia, the civil war in the first place. These are the demands that, of course, the, so the broad social movements um, are continuing to ask and are being punished for with bullets, uh, including journalists um, uh, in, the, in the, the more recent uh, 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 developments in Colombia, there's been massive protests uh, in, in, in Colombia. People are being killed, imprisoned, um, and so forth, which is hardly mentioned in the Western press. So the FARC has, um, has, has obvious links with, 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 of course, social movements, but it's very dangerous in Colombia to make those links. So that's why it's a, it's, it's a, it's a clandestine um, uh, a, a movement. Um, it has to be uh, for yeah. the protection of individuals. But, the, but, but, but to say that the people involved in, in these social protests don't understand it and only look at it from the same Western narrative would be very naive. Yeah. Um, just a couple more questions. This has been really illuminating. Um, so liberation theology, at least some some spokespeople for it say it actually started in Medellin. Is, is that been um, 
a force of resistance in in these drug wars, or did it gain? Did it get stronger in part because of the excesses of the drug wars? Has it had any real influence beyond kind of an intellectual thing? Well, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think I think when we look at the kind of ideas that have inspired rebellion in Colombia and other parts of the third world. Marxism has been one, Marxism, Leninism has been another, uh, anarchism, predominantly from the middle classes, uh, which is interesting and, and telling, but also liberation theology um, from the uh, ELN um, aspect of, of, of the insurgency. Camilo Torres, the famous liberation theologist, uh, who was an ALN fighter, um, uh, wrote um, a lot of extensively about the, the importance of drawing that link between uh, faith and rebellion and, that, that, and how there was no contradiction for a Christian to take up arms against, against injustice and so forth. So these ideas of liberation theology are, are very strong um, in parts of the world, like in Colombia. And that's the ideological source of what of where the ELN comes from. It's that idea that, um, that it is a moral, your moral right to, to uh, uh, um, uh, overthrow, of course, injustice and tyranny. Right. And the very different to the fact where you've got a very more peasant, um, a nucleus emerging from the 1960s. And, and the recognition that those in power are not amenable to moral suasion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, this has been fantastic, much appreciated. I think just, this is gonna be a, <laughs> a left field question, but for an audience of Americans who are struggling with drug addiction, What out of your work do you think they should know? What, a, what have you learned that you think a drug addict should understand about the political economy of drugs? I think, I think uh, Gabor Mate, if you've probably heard of, um, I'm sure you have, um, I think says it beautifully that we have to understand the trauma of, 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 of course, what it is to be a, a drug addict. That's the first stage. The second stage is know your history. Um, and the history is that you're, you're, you're actually a victim. You're not the problem. And, 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 and you have to, and, and, and that's an opportunity to get political and that you can make a big difference. If we think of what we can learn from all of this, from this history of this link between imperialism and the drug trade, um, what has been the dominant approach? It's treatment, you know, it's criminalization. It's after the fact. Now, prevention is better than cure. There's been little to any movement in that area. I think that's one aspect where I think needs to be fought. And there's mount, uh, so much evidence that supports that prevention is better than, than, than cure. Um, in fact, it's far more cost effective. There's been studies done on that professional criminologists and other experts have known that. So I think these are the things, know your history, you're, you're the victim and that, and that 
we need to fight for these um, these these policies for prevention because the, otherwise, what 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 lead, what what is the the inevitable consequence here? It's the prison industrial complex in the United States, the largest penal colony in, on earth. Yeah. Um, will be happy for things to continue as normal. The military industrial complex will happy to continue the war on drugs around the world, creating a new generation of drug addicts addicts and victims of, 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 of US policies. These are the things I think we need to na narrow the target and broaden the base. Realize that mm. intellectuals, um, uh, uh, workers, unions, uh, the underclass, however you want to call it, we, we're all part of this, this, this broader movement to, to, to change the world and to end, of course, um, uh, this imperial plague, which is uh, a commodity uh, for profit and, 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 and repression. That's, I think, uh, what we can learn from. But against, again, from our own experiences, we can draw our own talents and unique perspectives into this. But we have to understand, of course, the history, the reality of, of, of capitalism, what it is, and the reality of imperialism. We're told that imperialism ended in the 19th century with the British Empire. No. Uh, if things are but if things don't change, it's by design. Yeah. These are informal structures and institutions and policies of imperialism. And so that makes you a very a very dangerous um, individual if you can if you know your history and you can make a difference. And yeah. you have the rich, unique perspective that no one else can bring forward. Well, Oliver, that was wonderful. So um if anyone wants to follow you or your work, is there any way we can find yeah, you? I have, yeah, I have um, a poor man's uh, homepage. Um, uh, you can find me uh, at, uh, just you Google Oliver Villa CSU, I have a homepage. So all my work is there, uh, media, um, interviews, et cetera, which will, this one will go there too. That's one of the ways in which you can do it. Or you can email me. Um, right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.